Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Our text this morning is verse 11 through verse 15, which is on page 966 if you have one of the red Bibles. We've been working our way through 2 Corinthians and 22 messages today. Uh, we begin the, the second half of our series, you might say, verse, uh, message 12 of 22. We're not quite halfway through the book, so we'll pick it up here, our pace here in a bit. But this morning our text is just five verses, chapter 5, verses 11 through 15 of 2 Corinthians on page 966 of the Red Bibles. And if you're able, I want to invite you to stand so that we might honor the reading of God's holy, inspired, and errant word this morning. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 11 through 15. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us, so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Would you remain standing as we pray? Father, we do not take this moment for granted. <clears throat> we know our own weaknesses. I know mine. I know my weakness in preaching your word. We know our weakness in hearing your word and loving and obeying your word. And so we confess our weakness and we ask right now that you would manifest your power through our weakness. Would you show yourself mighty? Might it be clear to us today that the preaching was a demonstration of the Spirit of God working in power and that the hearing of God's Word was the same? Would you do this for our good and for your honor? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. One of the things that the Bible makes clear is that our motivations matter. In other words, it's not only our words or our actions, though important they are, that matter, but also our motivations. In fact, the Bible presents this at times in an almost shocking way. Just think how shocking it is when you get to 1 Corinthians 13, and Paul tells us that an individual can give away all that he has, or even give his body over to death, and yet... If he has not love, if he's not driven by love, it counts for nothing. What this means for us is not only then do we need to think of our own motivations as individuals, but we need to think of our motivations and our work as a church. If the mission that Christ has given Cornerstone Community Church is the same mission he's given all churches, and indeed it is, that we're to make disciples and baptize them, teaching them to obey all that Christ has commands, then one of the things that we must teach them is not only, again, to use the right words, to do the right actions, but part of obedience to Christ's commands also in, in, involves having the right motivations. And so if it's not only true that you and I must be driven by the right motivations, but that we, as we make disciples, must teach others to have the right motivations, what then are those motivations? 
What must be the things that drive us as a believer from our hearts that compel us and, and control us, that drive us toward the words we use and the actions we do? And 2 Corinthians 5, verses 11 through 15, I think is in part, um, is a part of a glorious answer to that question. Now, this is not the whole. We can continue to work through the Bible and find other motivations that the Bible gives us. But what Paul does in 2 Corinthians 5, 11 through 15 is he goes back one more time to a bit of an exposure about himself. We saw this often in the early chapters of the book of 2 Corinthians. Paul was, was being very uh, autobiographical. He was unfolding his life, unfolding what drove him, unfolding what's in his heart. Well, he does it again in chapter 5, verses 11 through 15. Now, in next week's text... We're going to look a bit more about the performance, that, that, that as an ambassador for Christ, he implores with men, he pleads with men to be reconciled to God. We're going to look at the, the nature of his ministry, but in these verses, I want us to focus on Paul's motivations, what drives him, because it seems that in this text, Paul not only unveils to the Corinthians what drives him, but he unveils to them, he assumes in fact what drives them as well. And so the implication of this text is that the motivations we see here should characterize us as well. So let's answer this question then with three answers. What should drive you and me as children of God? Number one, the fear of God. The fear of God. This is where Paul begins our text in verse 11. He says, therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. When Paul says we persuade others, he's talking about his nature of gospel ministry, the fact that, that he goes out and he preaches the gospel to individuals. He, he proclaims to them that Christ lived and died and was raised from the dead and now reigns at the Father's right hand, that if we repent and believe in Him, we can have forgiveness of sins and eternal life. But Paul says, what, what, what drives me, what leads me to persuade others, what leads me to that ministry is knowing the fear of the Lord. And it's fitting that Paul talks about the fear of the Lord because in the very previous verse, the verse we ended at last week, Paul was mentioning judgment. Here's what he wrote in verse 10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Now when you put those two things together then, it makes perfect sense. Paul in verse 10 is talking about the judgment when men and women will stand before Jesus Christ and be judged according to what they have done, Paul says. That is a terrifying scene where some will be welcomed into the kingdom while others will be cast into the lake of fire where they will know torment day and night forever and ever. So as Paul thinks about that scene of judgment, he says, therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. So I think it would be very simple then for me to say, Paul knew the fear of the Lord. You and I should also have the fear of God in our hearts. But it's not quite that simple, is it? In fact, my guess is that when I say this, there may be some of us who maybe our hearts are squirming a bit or even wanting to push back a bit. And if our hearts are wanting to push back again, saying, I'm not so sure we need to fear God, then I don't think that's utterly unreasonable. There is a certain argument you could make, and that argument would go like this. In 1 John 4, 18, John writes this, There is no fear in love. But perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. Therefore, someone could say, in fact, the very next verse says, we love him because he first loved us. 
Someone could say then, if I am to love God, and I do, and perfect love casts out fear, so that whoever fears has not been perfected in love, then if I genuinely love God, and perfect love casts out fear, then I should not fear God. More than that, they could add from this verse, fear has to do with punishment. And isn't punishment the one thing that's been taken off the table for the believer? I mean, the great gospel rejoicing that we do every Sunday is that because of our sins, we deserve God's judgment, we deserve wrath, we deserve punishment for our sins, but praise be to God, punishment has already been meted out. And it was meted out not on us, but on the one who gave himself for us, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. As he died on the cross, he died bearing divine punishment for our sins. So the argument could go like this. Perfect love casts out fear. One who has been perfected in love does not fear. We love God. Therefore, we do not fear God. Fear has to do with punishment. Punishment has been removed because it has been borne by God's Son for us. Therefore, if fear has to do with punishment and our punishment has been satisfied, we should not fear God. Seems pretty simple. Seems pretty straightforward, doesn't it? It seems like a pretty coherent argument. The problem is the rest of the Bible. You see, there are many other places where we're actually told or even commanded to fear God. Think, for example, of the new covenant promises. Now, we've talked a lot about this. Jeremiah and Ezekiel especially, as they prophesied, they would prophesy in the Old Testament setting, they would prophesy about the new covenant to come. We've celebrated this before. The new covenant promises, God would take out our heart of stone and give us a heart of flesh. He would, he would put His Spirit within us and cause us to walk in His ways. He would, he would change our desires. He would give us forgiveness of sins. We would be His people and He would be our God. These, these are all things that we celebrate every week, don't we, that are true. We say those promises that the old prophets made about the new covenant, we now live in the reality of those promises. One of those promises, though, that we might forget that the prophets made was that people like you and me who live on this side of the resurrection of Christ and who know Him would have the fear of God. Jeremiah 32, 38 through 40, here's what Jeremiah writes. He writes it as the mouthpiece of God. This is God speaking. God says, they shall be my people and I will be their God. I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever. He continues, I will make with them an everlasting covenant and I will, will not turn away from doing good to them and I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. One of the blessings of being a believer on this side of the resurrection is that we have the fear of God in our hearts so that we do not turn from Him. Not only that, but Jesus explicitly commands us to fear God. In Matthew 10, 28, Jesus says, And do not fear those who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Now, this makes sense to us, I think, in light of last week's text. You remember? We said this body is wasting away. It's frail. It's fragile like a jar of clay. And yet, if this body is destroyed, if you and I die before the return of Christ, our souls will leave our wasting away, destroyed bodies and we will be absent from this body, but we will be at home with the Lord. And so Jesus is saying, if that's true, why would you be afraid of man? 
So he commands us, do not fear those who can kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. But then note the next sentence Jesus says, rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Who's that? That when he says fear him, it's God. So Jesus in Matthew 10, 28 explicitly commands you and I as his followers, fear God. The New Testament then repeats this command throughout. Philippians 2, we just went through this book just a few months back. Paul wrote to the Philippians, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For God is at work within you, both to will and to do of His good pleasure. In other words, it's, it's not work out your salvation with fear because God is against you, but work out your own salvation with fear and trembling because God's at work within you, both to will and to do of His good pleasure. Or think about even this book. Let's just look over to chapter 7 of 2 Corinthians. Paul's going to mention it again. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. And then one more text, unless we want to say, well, well, maybe they're not considering the fact that we're forgiven. Psalm 130, verse 4, but with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. So what do we do with this? On the one hand, perfect love casts out fear because fear has to do with punishment. On the other hand, the fear of God is what God actually puts in our hearts so that we do not turn from Him. Jesus explicitly commands it. The New Testament repeats it. In fact, we have been forgiven so that we might fear God. Here's how I think we reconcile them. The fear that you and I have of God is not the fear of punishment. So perfect love casts out the fear of punishment. In other words, you and I don't live our lives, and then we shouldn't, in dread of God's wrath being poured out on us. We don't live our lives saying, I may well face His wrath. We can live our lives in the security of knowing that we belong to God, that He loves us, that He delights in us, that He approves of us because of the work of Christ. Therefore, we do not have to fear the judgment of God on the day of wrath. And in that sense, 1 John 4.18 is fulfilled in us. On the other hand, though, When we consider who God is and who God is in His judgment, it better cause a soberness and a fear of God in our hearts. You see, it's it's fitting, isn't it, that, that in verse 11, Paul mentions the fear of the Lord, and in verse 10, he had mentioned judgment. Because I think it's explicitly when we think of judgment that our hearts sober up and we realize afresh who God is. Do you think... If you had been one of the eight individuals on the ark, when the rains began to pour and the people outside of that boat began to realize what was happening and they beat upon that boat and they yelled and they screamed, do you think anybody in the ark would have needed to be reminded that God is to be feared? Or on the night of the Passover, When the Israelites put the blood of the lamb over their doors and then they heard the blood-curdling screams from parent after parent after parent who woke up to find out that their firstborn had been killed, do you think that you would have reminded any of the Israelites, you know what, God is a consuming fire and it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. No, 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 they would have known it. 
Do you think when John was seeing the vision in Revelation 14 where the Lord was describing what his wrath against his enemies will look like and he pictured his enemies like grapes being thrown in a wine press where he was pressing them out with his feet so that their blood ran out of that wine press and rose as high as the horse's bit? Where according to Revelation chapter 16 verse 19, God was pouring out, quote, the fury of his wrath. You think they would have needed to be reminded that God is to be feared? No. Simply contemplating the reality that God is our judge and He will judge those who do not know Him is a sobering and fearful reality. God is to be feared. Perhaps a non-biblical example. Just imagine if you will. You're standing before a group of men who wanted to take your very life. And they were all against you, ready to attack you. And finally, someone much greater than you rushes to the scene, grabs you and puts you behind his back so that you might take refuge in him, and then mercilessly begins to slaughter every one of them in front of you. Don't you imagine in that setting, knowing that you're protected, knowing that He is your refuge, you would have said to yourself, I better not wander away from Him. That's why God said to the prophets, I will put the fear of God in them so that they might not turn from me. It's a bit ironic that I think we sometimes think it's out of place for Christians to know the fear of the Lord when the reality is it's only Christians who know the fear of the Lord. The person who is dying in his sins and happily walking in unrepentance, storing up wrath for himself on the day of judgment, he has no fear of God. It's only the believer whose heart has been transformed, who rightly fears God. And Paul says, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. Knowing the fear of the Lord, we go forth and we proclaim the gospel. We preach Psalm 2.12, kiss the Son, lest He be angry and you perish in His way. For His wrath is quickly kindled, but blessed are those who take refuge in him. If you have never repented of your sins, you have never placed your faith in Christ this morning, I want to tell you, fear God and then run to Christ who is your refuge. The one who has lived and died and been raised so that you might have forgiveness of sins and hope in Him. Repent this morning and place your faith in Him. If you are a believer, let this be your motivation. There's a reason why when we sing of Christ's return, as we did earlier. Lord, haste the day when, when faith shall be sight, the, the clouds be rolled back as a scroll. We say, even so, it is well with my soul. Why say even so? Because it's a terrifying reality. We are motivated by the fear of the Lord, fear of God. Second, we're motivated by an eagerness to exalt our brothers and sisters. We're motivated by an eagerness to exalt our brothers and sisters. 
As Paul continues in this text, he's had to spend so much of this letter already defending himself. I'll remind you briefly of the setting. You had some individuals who were against Paul who were saying to the Corinthians, write Paul off, sideline Paul, don't listen to Paul. Paul is not an impressive figure. And so Paul has had to in some ways defend himself. And, and as he's doing this, he wants to say to the Corinthians, it's looking like I'm doing it once more, but, but, but to finish verse 11, he's going to say to them, I hope that you, that this is needless because you already know who I am. Here's what he says to finish verse 11. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others, but what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. In other words, Paul's hoping that the Corinthians would say, Paul, there's no need for you to tell us that you're motivated not by selfish motives or by gain or something. We know you're driven by the fear of the Lord. We know that you're sincere. We know that you're godly. Paul's hoping they're going to say, there's no need of this. Moreover, as he's been commending, or as he's looked like he's defending himself, it looks like he's once, one more time just commending himself, saying, listen to me, I'm worthy, I'm worth your listening, as if, as if his focus is totally about himself. So he wants to address that in verse 12 and tell them, here's what I'm really doing. Here's what he says in verse 12. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us, so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. Now, that's interesting. Paul says, what I've been doing, it's not commending myself. What I'm actually doing is I'm giving you reasons to boast about me. Because there are going to be times when my enemies attack me to you. And in those moments, I'm giving you ammunition so that when they say Paul is simply driven by greed, you now can step up and say, no, 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 he's driven by the fear of the Lord. Or when they say, Paul is this, you can say, no, 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 he's that. Now, what's interesting here, I think, in verse 12, is an assumption by Paul that shows great grace to the Corinthians. Let me try to draw out what I think that assumption is by asking this question. Is there anyone or are there individuals in your life who, when you have successes or accomplishments, you want to share them with that person or those individuals? Perhaps if you're a child, you have something good happen to you, you get a good grade or a report card, hit a home run, whatever it is, you're eager to share that with your parents. Or maybe as a spouse, husband, or wife, you have something that you've accomplished, a success you have, and you want to share it with your spouse. Or, or maybe, again, a success or accomplishment you want to share with your friend. Okay, so... You can think right now, if something good happened, an accomplishment, success, think of individual or individuals with whom you would share that. Okay, now, answer this question. Why wouldn't you just share that with everyone? Why wouldn't you get on Twitter and say, I just had a great accomplishment? We might say, well, some people do. But I think the reason we would say well, we don't want to announce it to everyone is because you don't want to come across as arrogant, right? I, I don't want to boast about all my accomplishments or my successes. You don't want to do that to everyone because they're going to think, good grief, that's an individual that's arrogant and self-centered. Okay, well, let's go back then to the first group. Why is it that that individual or individuals with whom you do share your successes and you do share your accomplishments why don't you hesitate with them thinking they're going to think I'm arrogant and self-centered? 
If you're a kid and you played Little League Baseball and your parents weren't at the game and you hit the game-winning Grand Slam, why doesn't the kid walk into his house and stop and say, I was going to share this with my parents, but they might think I'm arrogant and self-centered. I'm just going to act like nothing happened. Well, we would say the, the reason that he doesn't think that, the reason he can be eager to share it with his parents is because he knows his parents love him. And when you genuinely love someone, you actually take joy in their accomplishments, don't you? This, I think, is the answer to the question, why do you share your successes and accomplishments with certain individuals and not others? The answer is because the individuals with whom I share this, I know they genuinely love me. And I know that rather than being turned off by me sharing that with them, they actually would take joy in it. I would bring them delight because they genuinely love me. Now let's go back to verse 12. What is Paul assuming about the Corinthians when he says, we are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us? What Paul is assuming is that the Corinthians' heart toward him is one that is eager to see Paul lifted up before others. Or we might say his assumption is that the Corinthians genuinely love him. Because when we genuinely love our brothers and sisters in Christ, we want to see them exalted, don't we? Now, the reality is that this assumption by Paul, I think, is a safe assumption. And the reason is, ironically, I have noted 1 John 4.18 and 1 John 4.19. Well, in 1 John 4.20, John writes, He who does not love his brother whom he, can, whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. So in other words, Paul's assumption is if you're a believer, you love your brothers and sisters in Christ. In fact, if you don't love your brothers and sisters in Christ, you can't really claim to love God. How can you claim to love the one you cannot see when you don't even love the ones you do see? And so Paul's assumption about the Corinthians is that they love him and they delight to see him exalted. But the reality is, though this should be an assumption we can make of believers, this is not natural in the world. I don't have to tell you that in the world, the world is full of envy and covetousness, of gossip and of backbiting, and actually a delight in the failures of others. Isn't that one of the more disgusting things that we can do as humans? We delight in the failures of others. In fact, sometimes if, if someone has a mistake or a failure or a great evil that they've committed, the world can be so quick to rush and make that known. I think because there's this subtle implication, look who I am better than. But the reality is, brothers and sisters, if that's true of the world, greed and covetousness, backbiting and gossip and delight in one another's failures, when the Lord Jesus Christ changes our hearts, there should be a complete reversal. So that among followers of Jesus Christ, there should be not only a lack of those things, envy and covetousness, gossip and backbiting and delight in one of those failures, but the positive presence of their opposite, a delight in one another's successes, an eagerness to, to speak behind one another's backs in a good way, to build them up, especially as Paul implies here, when individuals are being attacked, it should be believers who are quick to step up and say, actually, let me speak well of that person. Now, imagine how glorious, and I know we've noted this early in this book, I've noted it in the book of Corinthians, but don't let the familiarity of this note breed contempt for it. How glorious 
of a community it would be if you and I lived our lives with one another, looking, nitpicking one another to try to find elements of grace so that when we have opportunities to speak behind one another's backs, we can take and speak of those glorious realities on one another's backs. In other words, that you and I look at one another so that when we have opportunity, we have ammunition to exalt them, to build them up to others. This is what the church should be. Those who come into the church should say, this is, this is like a, a world that is upside down, a people whose hearts have been changed. And I want to say this specifically. If you're youth age, and you've stepped into these waters of baptism, you've professed Christ as Lord, I want to especially raise this command to you. Because we all know that what can happen when you enter into your teenage years is all kinds of insecurities creep into your heart. And they last until you're about 90. <laughs> but they're perhaps especially strong in those adolescent years. And so one of the things that can happen in those insecure years of adolescence is we don't feel great about ourselves. And so we tend to respond the same way the world does. If there's an opportunity for some girls to speak ill about another girl because it makes all of them feel better, they pounce on it. If there's an opportunity for a bunch of guys to speak ill of another guy because it makes them feel better about themselves and their insecurity, they pounce on it. And you know what? It may be extremely common, but it is not Christian. And if you've professed faith in Christ in these waters of baptism, what you are proclaiming to us, what you are proclaiming to the world is, I will not live like that. My heart will not be conformed to this world, but it will be transformed so that I live according to the Word of God. And the Word of God says you and I need to be motivated by not an eagerness to tear down, but an eagerness to see our brothers and sisters exalted. That was motivation number two. Motivation number three, the love of Christ. The love of Christ. Paul realizes as he writes this that anytime he says something that sounds like he's defending himself, it feels foolish to Paul. It feels like he's out of his mind. That's why he writes in verse 13, if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. Paul's saying, listen, if it sounds like I'm out of my mind and I'm crazy, I'm doing it because I, I'm tempting to honor God. If it sounds like I'm, I'm, I'm rational, it's because I'm driven by love for you. Everything I'm doing is driven by my love for God and my love for you. And then he tells us why. Verse 14. He says, for the love of Christ controls us. Here's where he lists his final motivation, and he mentions it in a controlling way. What drives me is the love of Christ. But now, I think this raises a question for us. When, when Paul says the love of Christ, does he mean Christ's love for me or our love for him? And here's what I think the answer is. I think he's fundamentally foundationally, talking about Christ's love for us. That turns into, that produces love in us for Him. But fundamentally, he starts with Christ's love for us. This is what he writes in the rest of verse 14. 
For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. You see, the reason I say he's, he's fundamentally talking about Christ's love for us is because when he goes to elaborate on it, he doesn't talk about how we're loving Christ. He talks about Christ's love for us, right? The, the love of Christ because he died for all and therefore all have died. We know from Romans chapter 5, God demonstrates his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us us. So Paul says, I'm talking about the love of Christ for us, that's why I'm going to bring up the cross. And specifically here, and this is important for us, especially when we read that latter half of the phrase, therefore all have died. Specifically here, he's talking about his love for his people. Now the reason we say that is because when you look at the latter half of 14, you can say that one has died for all. That feels like everybody, right? Everybody in the world, the whole universe. And yet he adds, therefore all have died. What does he mean that all have died? How have all died? Well, the reality is that only those who have died are those who have placed their faith in Christ, those who belong to Christ. When we place our faith in Christ, we are united with him so that Paul can say, Christ died and you have died with him. Here's the language he uses in Romans 6, 6 through 8. We know that our old self was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin, for one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we'll also live with him. So here's what Paul says. If you've died with Christ, your body of sin has been brought to nothing. If you've died with Christ, you're no longer enslaved to sin. If you've died with Christ, you've been set free from sin. If you've died with Christ, you're going to live with Him forever. So clearly, all who have died are all believers, or all those who will believe. So in verse 14, when he says, He has died for all, therefore all has died, he's expressing his love for us in a particular way. This is, this is as Paul saying in the book of Galatians, Christ loved me and gave himself for me. Paul's reminding us of Christ's love for us. But then in verse 15, he shows us how this turns into love for him. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him, for Christ, who for their sake died and was raised. Paul says when we understand Christ's love for us, he died for us and I've died with him, that should therefore do something in my heart that leads me to want to live for his sake, for the sake of the one who lived and died for me. Now if that's true then, the great motivation that Paul ends with in this text that we have in our heart is the love of Christ. Every day, you and I should be able to remind ourselves that Christ loves us and therefore our love for Him should compel us. Now, if that's true, then it is utterly crucial every day of our lives that we remind ourselves of Christ's love for us. This is one reason why I wanted to begin the service by reading Revelation 1 through 8, because in verse 5, Jesus Christ is described as the one who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. Brothers and sisters, I want to tell you this is the greatest news in the world. If you know Christ, 
no matter what each day holds, you can wake up saying, Jesus Christ loves me and has freed me from my sins by his blood. Just recently, I was talking to a close friend of mine who's been diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. He's going to die. The doctors say there's nothing that they can do. They've told him he maybe have months, but he's built like me, and he's already lost 15 pounds. I doubt he has months. As we spoke on the phone the other day, and I was just weeping, he reminded me that he knows he belongs to Christ. He reminded me of the one who loves him and has freed him from his sins by his blood. And if that's true, then cancer ultimately means nothing. One day, he will die, it looks like soon, and he will go to be with the one who loves him and has freed him from his sins by his blood. And therefore, he says, because I know he loves me like that, I can live every day trusting him. I can live every day knowing he is good. And this then must be the motivation that we have as well. If we ask ourselves, the Bible says that it not only matters what we say and what we do, but also why, what drives us, what should drive us, the fear of God, an eagerness to love our brothers and sisters and see them exalted, and a desire to honor and please God because we know the love of Christ for us. Now, I will say, then as we conclude this message, concluding a sermon like this can be odd when the points have been about motivation. In other words, these aren't application points. It's not as if I'm saying to you, do this and do this and do this, so that we come to the table saying, yes, we will do these things. I'm rather saying, this should drive you and that should drive you and this should drive you as well. How do you respond to that? I think the response, if we are believers to a text like this, needs to be this. We need to ask the Lord, Lord, would you continue the transforming work that you've begun in my heart? Would you do it so that these things characterize me? Would you make me someone who knows the fear of the Lord? Would you make me someone who knows the love of Christ and is driven by that? Would you make me someone who is eager to edify my brothers and sisters in Christ? And so what we're going to do this morning... First, if you're not a believer, I want to plead with you to place your faith in Jesus Christ this morning. If you want to talk to me or someone after the service, we'd love to talk to you. If you are a believer and good standing with a gospel-preaching church, then I want to invite you to come to the table. But before we do, we're going to take a moment of silence. And during that moment of silence, I'm going to let the ushers, I mean the, the, the band come forward. Um, I want to let John join me. He's going to distribute uh, the bread and the cup with me this morning. But during that moment of silence, I want us to use this as an opportunity just in silence before the Lord to say, Lord, would you do in my heart what this text says needs to drive me? So let's take a moment of silence now as we prepare to come to the table, and then I'll give instructions after we pray as to what coming to the table looks like this morning. So let's take a moment of silence this morning.